Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome back to the Heredity Podcast. This month we'll be uncovering the mating system of the mountain pine beetle and performing a landscape genetics study in the American badger. For something the size of a grain of rice, the mountain pine beetle, Dendroctonus ponderosae, can wreak serious havoc amongst its pine tree hosts. That's because they don't work alone. Every 20 years or so, their populations erupt into epidemic swarms, which decimate millions of hectares of healthy forest. And since 2005, these beetles have expanded into boreal Canada, where initial research suggests that their biology is different to the previously managed outbreaks. But it's best to know your enemy, so in light of the most recent outbreak, Jasmine Janes of the University of Alberta and her team set up a study to understand more about these beetles in order to tailor the best suited management practices. Here's Jasmine. The mountain pine beetle, it's actually a native forest pest throughout Western North America. So its range goes from sort of around Arizona in the United States through to British Columbia in Canada. In recent years, it's been expanding its range. So it's now expanded through into Alberta in Canada. And there's been some big concerns that once it started spreading that far, that it might actually be able to go through the entire boreal forest of Canada because it's now switched to a different host. And what's the worry? What does this pest do to its host plants? Generally, when it's not in an eruption, you hardly ever see a mountain pine beetle. You would hardly even know that they're in the forest. But every 20 years or so, they have these huge population eruptions. And when they do this, they're capable of destroying millions of hectares of forest at a given time. So the the concern is that if they manage to establish themselves in jack pine, which is the main pine species of the boreal forest, that come the next population eruption that they'll actually be able to destroy the boreal forest and and move through Canada that way. And this is quite a well-known pest. What do we know about the biology of this species and what more do we need to know to get a handle on these outbreaks? So at the moment, we know that they're a bark beetle. They complete their life cycle under the bark of pine trees. So they chew through the bark and they create these little tunnels, which we call galleries. And basically, the females will go in there, they'll mate with a male and lay eggs, and the larvae will grow up in there. They'll turn into adult beetles and then they'll fly off and and repeat the process in a different tree. They're very small. They're about the size of a grain of rice. It's only when they're in these incredible numbers that they are capable of causing such destruction. But one of the things that we also know is, um, well, we've always thought that they have a reasonably stable mating system in that we always thought males were capable of having multiple female mates, but that females only have one male mate. So a bit of a female monogamous situation, but a male polygamous situation. What are the management practices at the moment? Are we using kind of pesticides or what's what's the current practice? 
Generally we don't use pesticides because there's too many other important species that would be affected by those chemicals. So one of the most common practices at the moment, at least throughout Canada, is that once you see a mountain pine beetle attack on a tree, the tree, it, it essentially dies. So when you're doing aerial surveys, you look for these red trees and if you see them, the, the philosophy is you go in and you cut that tree down and you burn it. So that prevents further spread of the beetle. So that's probably one of the most effective strategies that they're having at the moment. And why is an understanding of the mating system important for kind of management practices? Different mating systems have different consequences on population structure. For example, if a female is only mating with her relatives, then she's going to produce these highly related offspring and that's going to produce sort of an inbred population with a different population genetic structure to what we would see if a female is mating constantly with completely unrelated male individuals. And is the idea that if they were more genetically homogenous as a population that that would be easier to tackle? Yes, that's pretty much the idea. Basically finding out if it's sort of a uniform genetic structure across the landscape, that means that we don't have to tailor our management practices to particular stands. Essentially, the management practices we put in place in, say, Arizona should work the same as in British Columbia. And also you wanted to have a look at the fine-scale genetic structuring. Yeah, so genetic structure is basically looking at the pattern of genetic variation across the landscape. So having an idea of that, generally we look at it at a, a quite a broad scale, so perhaps across several states or perhaps across a continent. Whereas when we look at fine-scale genetic structure, in my case, we're looking at, for example, just one forest stand. And within that forest stand, if you can identify a pattern of genetic structure, then you can sort of start to answer questions like, where did the beetles come from? Which other stand nearby are they most closely related to? And, and that sort of thing. OK, so to investigate this fine-scale genetic structuring and the mating systems employed by these beetles, you used SNPs, used a SNP analysis. Tell me about that. I've used about 91 of these in this paper, and these single-base mutations can tell me the difference between populations, for example, and that can help me then infer the population genetic structure. And when we're looking at individuals, of course, if they're more closely related to each other, they should share more SNPs in common than if they were unrelated. So that, in a sense, helps in understanding the, the level of relatedness or kinship or siblingship or however you'd like to describe it. What did you find out about that fine-scale genetic structuring within this, this area of forest you were working in? We actually didn't find any, so that was an interesting finding. We had expected that we would see some sort of signal being picked up, you know, that the, the beetle had migrated from areas further west as they're expanding their range. So we did think that there would be sort of this stepping stone effect, but we actually didn't. And surely that's a good thing. In terms of management, it is a really good thing because, as we said earlier, it means that the same method that is being used in one place should be able to apply equally to anywhere else where mountain pine beetle occurs. We also found that females were mating with multiple males and that wasn't thought to, to happen with mountain pine beetle at all. All sort of previous literature had said that female mountain pine beetles were sort of strictly monogamous. And when you were looking in these galleries and doing sort of parentage analyses, you found another couple of interesting little bits of information, didn't you? 
Yeah, we did. So we found that within a gallery or one of these sort of tunnels where the females lay their eggs, so we, normally we would find a female and some of her larvae, her offspring. Now, we always assumed that those offspring would be hers and from one other male. But what we found is that actually a lot of them are unrelated. So it means that some females have been going and laying eggs in another female's gallery. So in a sense, kind of like the cookie bird, they've been sort of brood parasitizing. And how useful is that information in terms of managing this pest? Well, in terms of the mating system, I think it gives us a better understanding of some of the evolutionary biology of mountain pine beetle and some of its behavior. In terms of management models where we might have been limiting ourselves to thinking, well, a female only mates this number of times and therefore her reproductive output is going to be this and this is how this contributes to predicting when the next population eruption is going to occur. I think we can now safely change some of those parameters around and and have a better understanding and start refining some of those models a little bit better. And so the last big outbreak in this area was roughly sort of 10 years ago. Um, So are you expecting this to happen again in another 10 years or is it going to happen quicker or what's going to happen in the future of this species? Well, based on the biology and the behaviour of mountain pine beetle, we know that these population eruptions occur roughly every 20 years and that each eruption lasts for around five years. So I think it's pretty safe to say that we will see another population explosion in the next 10 years or so. The the thing that we have to factor into this, and the thing, of course, that's important in terms of management is climate change. I mean, if we're not having these severe winters of where we're getting these really cold temperatures to kill off mountain pine beetle, chances are that they're going to survive better and that's going to increase their numbers, which will contribute to a population explosion. Added to that, if they've changed host and they've now become established in jack pine, then it means that they have this whole new food source open to them. They're no longer just limited to lodgepole pine. They have this this other pine tree that they can presumably feast on if they do have an eruption. That was Jasmine Janes, then at the University of Alberta, and now at the University of New England in Australia. Landscape genetics is a pretty new field in conservation, coined in 2003, and it basically combines a couple of pre-existing fields, landscape ecology and population genetics. It essentially looks at what landscape factors are affecting the genetics of a population. But this is a tricky technique to pull off when you have very little field data for your study species. Elizabeth Karupka, who was at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, has been studying the American badger across Wisconsin. She used landscape genetics to tease apart the effect of the different landscape types on the gene flow of this species. I started off by asking Elizabeth why landscape genetics is such a useful strategy for conservationists. Human land use is one of the biggest threats to any population you can basically name. Uh, Humans alter habitats and um, destroy habitats, which results in these little islands of habitat in a formally continuous And so landscape genetics is one of the best ways to look at what we call habitat fragmentation. So can these individuals move across these sort of degradive habitats? And normally in this kind of research, the the genetic uh, findings are backed up by um, kind of field studies into the populations being studied. 
Right. So you never really want to base conclusions, especially for management, on just one piece of data because there are a lot of things that go into genetics. So when you have something like if you put a collar on an individual and follow it around and you see that those individuals avoid certain habitats and then genetics back up that those habitats are forming a barrier, that's really strong evidence versus just relying on genetics. But for some species, we don't always have that. (laughs) How does this technique perform then when we know very little about a species, as is the case here on the species you're working on, the American badger? So field data can sort of hone what you're testing. For example, if we know we're working with a species that likes forests, we're going to tailor what we test to forests. Where with badgers, what I worked with, we know they like grassland habitats, but there aren't really any, you know, what you would think of as a grassland. We have, you know, restored prairies in Wisconsin, but not to the level that they have out in Western North America where they've been studied. So when you try to tailor these analyses to things based in different areas, you can have very, very different responses, and that could actually lead to false results, which, again, if you're working for conservation, you don't want to have results that aren't relevant to the landscape you're working on. Tell me about your approach with the American badger then in Wisconsin. Okay, so American badgers in Wisconsin are a much beloved species, so people are readily willing to report if you know, badgers are in their yard, if we see them along a road, and things like that. So what we did is we basically solicited people to report badger activity to us, and if we had an active burrow or a roadkill, we could go out to that area and either sample the dead animal or attempt to pull hairs off of a live animal in a burrow. So that's naturally going to lead us to, you know, areas where they're very common or areas where people can see them. So when we went and did all this stuff, we found that, one, we had samples in areas that, you know, have a lot of farmland and have a lot of people because there's more likely they're going to be hit on roads and things like that. So we knew we had sampling that was sort of clumped around these areas. And then we also had, we don't really know much about badgers in Wisconsin. We know about them in very, very dense prairie areas, which are in the western United States. But in Wisconsin, there's lots of agriculture, a few restored prairies, and a lot of forest. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to test how these different types of land cover can affect badger movement throughout Wisconsin. And so you mentioned that the two main problems with your data set is that you had you had a real lack of life history data and also that the sampling was, of course, quite biased. So tell us about the statistical approaches that you used to then link the you know genetic connectivity with these landscape features. I basically did two main tests. One is called a spatially lagged regression. And essentially, it's a normal regression or something that you're just trying to correlate an X variable, so in this case, landscape features, and then a Y. And our Y variable is essentially the measure of genetic differentiation between individuals. And so what spatially lagged regression does is it controls for the effects of geographic distance. Once we did that regression, we found that agriculture was correlated with genetic differentiation, and so was the Wisconsin River, which is a very, very large river that just runs down the state. How did you then relate your genetic data to those landscape factors? 
so all those tests are basically looking for correlations. So let's say if a badger moves really well between grassland habitats, you would expect that the more grassland habitat you have, the less the genetic differentiation because they can move through it really well. Where if you have a barrier, so if forest habitats, for example, prevent animals from moving through it, then if two individuals are separated by forest, their genetic differentiation is going to be really high. And what happened when you analysed the genetic data you did get against those different landscape variables? So both analyses almost 100% agreed with each other in that they found that agriculture, one of the factors I detected, had a very low error rate. And then the other two, so the Wisconsin River and the effect of um, broad habitat types, had very, very high error rates. So they were falsely detected about 70 to 90% of the time. So really the only uh, factor that I could say didn't have a high error rate was agriculture. Mm. And what does that tell you about the effect that agriculture has on the Wisconsin population of American badgers? So we actually found the opposite of what we expected to find. We expected agriculture to be a negative um, habitat type because agriculture is not a um, ideal habitat for badgers. But what we think is going on is that agriculture is actually right next to suitable areas. So they're actually using them as sort of a corridor. So they're not living in agricultural fields as much, but they actually move through them. So it's actually enhancing their connectivity, which is counterintuitive. And the American badger itself, I mean, it's a protected species in this area precisely because we know nothing about it. How has your opinion of, its, of, of, of this population's health changed, you know, since you've done this study? So Wisconsin badgers are thought to be a grassland specialist, and they seem to be doing fairly well in Wisconsin despite conversion of those prey grasslands into agriculture about 100 years ago, which is was quite surprising to me and all pretty much everybody involved that they seem to be able to do fairly well in these types of habitat. And so as of right now, it seems that they're fairly healthy within the state, and they certainly have a broad distribution. I recorded activity in almost every single county um, within Wisconsin, which was, again, very surprising given that most of the prairie-type habitats are more to the south. So it was surprising that we were able to find them pretty much throughout the state. That was Elizabeth Karupka. And that's all we have time for this month. Please join us again next time for a new edition of the Heredity Podcast. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 